Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Now, it's crazy to think that we are almost at the end of season nine. I've actually been thinking about this a lot as I record these episodes this fall and winter that, you know, this podcast is, it's, it's four years old and, uh, man, there's a lot of content that that's come and a lot of transformation that I've had in my life. And I'm sure that you have too, if you've been listening along with it. And it's, it's actually made me quite reflective as I'm, as I'm kind of looking towards the holidays this year and kind of just taking stock of, of, of my life and, and, you know, some of the different things that I'm doing. And I am just so thankful for the movement that has been created from this podcast, doing this and and being the host has profoundly changed me and, and grown me. And I hope that it's done the same for you. Now, in our conversation today, I'm going to be talking with Kirk Newby, and Kirk was actually a guest on this podcast back at the beginning of season eight when we did the panel at the HPB Expo about the supply chain during COVID, but I wanted to get on and interview him as a legacy maker. Now, if you remember, in the first part of our season, we talked to up-and-coming leaders in the industry. We most recently talked with peak performers, and as we close out the season, we've been speaking with legacy makers. My, my definition of a legacy maker is someone who has served the industry for multiple decades and has made an impact where the next generation or the industry is impacted by them. And at whatever point they decide to leave the room or hang it up, there is a legacy that's left and there's a shadow of inspiration that that people want to walk in and try to live up to. And I felt like, man, I, I need to talk with Kirk. I, I mentioned this a little bit in our conversation, but The company that he's the president of, AES, is a company that is very dear to my heart because I was a customer of theirs for years, and and now I I do occasional work helping out their their sales team with with different trainings and events and things, but they're a company that I have just seen embody the idea of putting their customers first and treating them truly as a partner. So in today's conversation, we actually cover a lot of ground on different subjects that you know even go as far as like buying and selling businesses. We talk about what has changed during the time that Kirk has owned the business. And I think that you're going to get just a really cool picture of what it looks like to serve the industry faithfully. So with that said, I'm going to jump out of the way. I have some thoughts on the back end that I'll share, but for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Joining me from La Quinta, California, is the president of Associated Energy Systems. I'm here today with Kirk Newby. Kirk, it's good to talk to you. How are you doing? Excellent, Tim. Enjoying some decent fall weather. Yeah, I I know that, you know, I I had to pull you off the golf course, but being that it's a holiday weekend, you know, that's good that you're getting a little bit of downtime. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny. when, When I think about AES, I have been in AES customer for a lot of my life. I mean, when I, when I started in the industry, I was, I think I was like 18 and a half or so. And, uh, the company that I worked for sold ICC chimney pipe and we bought it through AES. So 
throughout my entire evolution, AES has been a part of it. And it's been really cool now to get to, to work with you guys on projects and things. But I, I guess to start this out, how, how, how long does your history go back with AES? Can you kind of talk about your journey getting started in the industry? Mm, wow. It's been a long time since someone's asked that. So our, our company was, was actually formed in 1945 by, by a grandfather on my mother's side. It was a hardware store, actually, hardware and fuel business, like, you know, heating oil, but they sold firewood, coal, and and then all the other normal hardware things. My father married into the business, um, and he bolted on a fireplace specialty retail shop to that in the late 50s, around 50, probably 58 to 60 or so that that happened. And then uh, I... I virtually have been working in the business, um, I guess, since birth. It started out as a local retail business, and our business transitioned in the late 70s into being more of a hearth-only business. My father had split up the wholesale and retail just, just when I kind of finished college, so 1982, and moved that portion of the business, renamed it Associated Energy Systems, and I um, ran and owned actually the retail um, portion for um, another eight years after that, eight or 10 years. And then my brother Craig and I bought the business, bought the, the wholesale business from our parents in 93. So we have been the owners and um, let's see, janitors, um, yeah. purchasers. Um, <laughs> we used to do an awful lot of different. We we wore a lot of hats. Sure, <laughs> some of them better than others, but but all of them necessary. You know, it's funny. I'll I'll never forget Craig, and I hope I don't I don't uh, spoil this for him. But I swear, from the time I was like probably twenty one, twenty two years old, I, I I would always get like two or three like $50 handshakes a year. And he, he's just, he's, he's the master of that. And he would, he would always, he would always shake my hand and I'd be like, Oh my gosh, Craig. And, you know, and I was, you know, I was broke and, and, you know, really young. And so it meant a lot that he did this and he would just say, Oh, I, I know all you can, you know, it's not that much. McDonald's is really expensive these days, but I, I hope it helps you. And, and I've interviewed Craig before and, and he's for me has been someone I've just looked up to for years and years in the industry. But what I'm curious of is this. So, my take with AES, I feel like you and you and Craig have these superpowers. Craig has this relational acumen that's just off the charts, and I feel like you have this this business acumen of of where to find opportunity and 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 what to push into and and how much do you go into something versus pulling back. And I, I feel like the the two of you guys working together have just made AES this powerhouse. And I guess the first question I'd, I'd like to ask is. How have you and Craig in a family business that you bought from your dad, how have you played to each other's strengths? Well, you know, it, it truly has been a great partnership and would would certainly not have wanted to, you know, walk all these miles without having him as a partner. It would be short selling him to say that his contribution is more on the relationship side. Um in a way, I think Craig ought to be the older brother in, in instead of me because there mm. there there is this uh, sixth sense that he has, and it's not just about relationships. Um, it tends to be about our staff, about vendor 
relationships and uh, products and all of that. He just he has a tendency to be able to oftentimes just tee the ball up for me and make it easy, and then he'll step away. One thing I'm curious of is this. So you talked about your father starting the company, and you've been basically working since birth there. And so when you would have started, this was this was a hardware store in Kent, Washington. And now AES is not a hardware store. It's a fireplace, outdoor living, HVAC distributor that 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 covers two thirds to three quarters of the United States. So that's a massive evolution. What's the biggest difference between where the company is now and how it used to be when you and Craig bought into it? What has changed is the evolution of our vendors, um, the new p- cool products that they bring out. Um, you know, in, in any category, I mean, the EPA comes up with new <laughs> uh, emission requirements and, you know, since 1980 or 77 or whenever it was that we were listening to, you know, and I think it was Oregon's Department of Environmental yeah. Quality that first made up the regulations and, uh, you know, uh, we're all going to be out of business. I mean, that was kind of, <laughs> and I, <laughs> while I still wonder that some days, I still am amazed, you know, that the, the manufacturers figure out how to, you know, jump that hurdle. But anyway, so it's it's great to work with, I, I think, you know, engaged, committed, wonderful manufacturers. And, and then the other thing is just I enjoy all of our staff. Um, you know, I'm the blondest of, of the the team now, and it's just fun to listen to to these young folks and see how they're doing and you know, watching them build build their own careers, become more confident as people. We have a number of people who have helped other staff under them grow as individuals, whether they stay with AES or even if they go somewhere else. You know, I, I think they've kind of bettered themselves by being in that environment. So that that's something that has that has changed. Yeah, well, and I, I feel like with that. So again, thinking about you and you and Craig buying the business from your father in 1993 compared to now, I feel like there's got to be an evolution. I know the late Steve Jobs, people talk about him saying that there was a Steve Jobs 1.0 and 2.0, that Steve Jobs 1.0, he was, he was brilliant, but he was like the, 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 the brilliant thinker with a thousand minions underneath him. And uh, he was kind of hot headed and passionate. And, and over time they say that he kind of became Steve Jobs 2.0 where the, he was no longer the only brilliant person. There was a bunch of brilliant people at Apple, and it, and it, it even had moved beyond him. and And he was able to 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 build something and and kind of give something away to the company for it to become its own living thing. And I'm curious, just with you, has, has there been an evolution? What do you know now that you didn't know 30 years ago about business and relationships <clears throat> and things like that? Well, I think how how hard it is to be successful. I think wow. as a younger person. It's easier to work that hard when you're younger. <laughs> There's just more energy and uh, the, the, the energy density is better in the tank. But I, I think you, you misunderstand that. And it's awfully easy as a young person to be a golden retriever and go after mm. every ball that, that you see thrown your way. Um, I think now we are much more focused on what it's going to take to be successful with the product. And we don't want to take something on 
from another vendor and not be successful with it. You know, like we're going to have a relationship with them. It needs to be successful. So I think I probably when I was younger, I I didn't realize that you could fail. <laughs> yeah. And I, I always thought I could outwork whatever the, whatever the uh, horizon drop off was. Right. And, uh, yeah. I, and you, and you can't necessarily do that when you, when you're relying on a lot of other people to do it too, you have to be realistic about, you know, what, what, what the amount of um, energy and competence of, of the entire group is to do that. Right. Yeah. So I think that would be what I would hope we are better at imparting with our customers is, you know, how to be successful with the, with the brands that we sell um, and not wanting them to take something on just because we can make that one sale, but yeah. wanting to ensure that, you know, that this is, this is a little more like planting a seed rather than, you know, catching a fish, right? This is, this is a long-term thing. We want to be able to harvest this crop for years to come, not, not just uh, one and done kind of thing. Cause it just, you know, these aren't those kinds of wins, right? I love that example too, because in planting a seed, not only is it long-term, but as, as you harvest the fruit and prune the tree, that's caring for the tree. So it's a win-win, like you're getting the fruit and you're caring for and watering the tree versus catching the fish, the fish is dead. It's a one-time thing and the fish is dead. And I think, it, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. We'll get back to our conversation with Kirk Newby in just one second. Hey, if you've been listening to the podcast this season and have just been slammed by the busyness and the amount of work coming in as it is the wintertime and it's cold outside, as I talk to different dealers around the country, even if they're slower than they were the year before, it still seems like there's no break, that jobs aren't getting quoted fast enough, it's harder than ever to hold on to team members, and at the end of the day, many retailers feel like, they don't have any type of a sales process to fall back on when the economy dries up. Well, if that's you, you have to take advantage of Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is a simple software tool designed to write up customized fireplace estimates in seconds. Seriously, it's lightning fast. You can write up a customized estimate for just about any fireplace in less than a minute and a half. And this is something you can train someone to. I mean, no joke. I, I used to tell people years ago that it would take two years to train someone to be able to write accurate bids with Wi-Fi, it will take two days. I'm not joking on that. So if you want to take control of your sales process, write up lightning fast estimates and get visibility as to what your team is doing, you need to schedule a demo today. And you can do that by going to wifire.com. That's W-H-Y-F-I-R-E.com. One thing I'd love to ask you about, during your time, I, I know that you have bought a number of businesses. And I, don't, I don't know if you've sold any businesses as well, but I'm, I'm curious, when you're looking at acquiring a business, what makes a business valuable to you? Look, really for us, this is just, it, it's been geographic ex- expansion. So, so one, it needs to be an mm-hmm. area where, we're, where we don't have the footprint that we would like to have. In most of these cases, we've done a little bit of business wherever we've acquired another company. There needs to be a a synergy with the vendors 
and with, there's there's a limit to how many vendors that we can you know do a good job representing their products. So, you know, just like a dealer has a limit to how many product mm-hmm. lines they can have on the floor and do and do a, a good job with. It's, yeah, it's the same for us. So, and then it's it's really great when there can be a staff synergy. I have found that to be pretty mercurial. <laughs> We could say, well, we've decided that we're yeah. going from stripes to spots today. And uh, so, you know, let's uh, show up Monday with spots. Got it, everyone? And it just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, your your stripes are your stripes. And, and you kind of have to stick with them. I feel like we've learned things through the acquisition. Sometimes we've learned <clears throat> from, from, the, from the companies that we've acquired. Other times it's been more <laughs> what we can't do, what doesn't work type of things. So, yeah, I'm going to write that book yeah. someday. Yep. <laughs> don't do this. Here's all the don't do things. Yeah, that's, that's I, I love I that. what I know more of than the do well, list, the much was, shorter list. Well, it's funny. I, was, I actually interviewed Alan Newkirk recently from Total Hearth. And do, do you know Alan at all? Yeah. I absolutely do. Okay, so I, he's much more cerebral than I am, by the way. Oh, uh, I don't know. I, I I think that I think that you and him would give each other a run for the money if you were in the same room. But what what he told me in in his experience with with selling his company to CUI was that the biggest thing that was the asset he had was the people he had in place to run the company that, that that it seemed like they were just so amazed at the talent and the staff that was going to come and and I guess from a business owner's perspective when you buy a business the last thing on earth that you want is a terrible transition but I, I have to imagine I mean how long does it take to smooth that out I mean does it take six months to a year like what have you found is like how long does it take to smooth that wave out once you once you buy somebody two years and maybe that's just my default, but I, I think it takes, it takes a couple of years. Um, so, and, and a lot of this, a lot of this has to do just with it, it's information platforms, it's complexity issues, how people were managed. So one thing I'm wondering, and this is, this kind of goes into buying and, and selling businesses, but with with your guys' ability to acquire businesses and decide when is the right time, I feel like you must be very in touch with your books. I, I'm just curious at a high level, like even with you as the president of the company, not not the controller or the CFO or anything. How often are you taking a look at the books or, or a, a PL balance sheet, things like that? Well, we we just changed our. Um, we are on the third ERP platform since Craig and I have owned AES. And when Craig and I first um, owned AES, there was no computer. Everything was written down on a little card. All of the invoices were handwritten. I have to say <laughs> there was a, there was a beauty. In yeah. It's that. probably the most simple, right? <laughs> yeah. But certainly we're much more efficient with, with the system we have now. Anyway, I look at all of it daily. I've had some good mentors that were in the grocery business and one of them was the president of QFC for, for a, a number of years. And, and, you know, he, I mean, he said, they, they just, they looked at everything, right? What's the, what was the store's volume yesterday? What was it on that same day last year? You know, what, what, what did the bakery do? What did the meat department do? You know, or the, you know, you know, on and on. So, I mean, they were, they were watching everything. We do not have, quite the level of sophistication, or at least I can't access it. We do have 
some some folks on our staff that are very adept at that. So we're we're watching data. I think we have to get better at deciding what is the important data, and then when it tells us this, then exactly what are we going to do, and when are we going to have that done? You haven't asked me this question about like what is what does the marketplace feel like, and you know what what do you think you I, like what do I see now that I've seen before? We we have a a much larger company and staff than what we had in in the during kind of the Great Recession, the yeah. kind of the 08, the 10 or so time frame. And when I look back at that and what you know and what what did I learn there and what are some of the lessons I think business lessons for you know specific for our business and our industry right and I because I I don't have that experience breadth of experience of a lot how how a lot of other uh, industries approach these things but in any case our business is very inventory intensive we we have to be careful to (laughs) to manage inventory levels and and as business um, we're rapidly increasing our inventory ahead of when business is increasing. Unfortunately, the downside does not work as well. You you tend to continue to peak and set new highs in inventory, even when you're trying to lower it when business is slowing down. So we're we're dealing with that challenge now. Uh, externally, when when I think about you know, the market that that's in front of us the next year yeah. or two, probably, you know, it's not going to be like the last year or two, right? There are no helicopters flying around, throwing money out the doors <laughs> and everyone wakes up in the morning and they've got, you know, the government has just instantly deposited money in their checking account. I, that, that little yeah. parade is all over now. The band yeah. is gone. You can't even hear them. I'm re- reminded that on this last downturn, um, a friend and, and mentor, uh, Tom Pugh, and I had sat down and we were we were talking about, okay, well, what are we going to do in, you know, 2009 when business had gone down 30 some percent? And uh, we just started talking about, well, you know, you're, our, our customers aren't going to, they're not going to be able to like... Um, put everything on sale and discount their way to prosperity, right? I mean, these are high overhead businesses, high touch, high, you know, complicated. You, you, you can't just like, well, let's not, let's not do this installation, right? Let's not, let's not go out to this customer's house and give them an accurate bid. We'll just, we'll just wing it. You know, um, you know, there's there, all the things that, that our customers have had to do to do the job correctly, they they continue to have to do those. And in the face of all of that, what they have is probably fewer door swings, um, uh, wages that that are increasing at rates that none of us really have ever seen before, probably. Um, and, you know, fuel costs, at a at growing, you know, just all of the stuff, you know, the insurance for your business, everything yeah. else, it's all going up. So anyway, so 
similar kind of a discussion, of course, without the inflation component, um, Tom and I had. And I, I ended up building this little spreadsheet and I was proving and, I, and, and talked with our staff and proving that, you know, okay, say you're going to discount your, your margins by 10%, how much more business do you have to do to end up with the same net profit? And everybody's gone through that exercise, right? Probably. Yep. And, yep. and, but you know, it's, it's a worthwhile little thing to go through a lot easier to do when now, and now that you have a spreadsheet to do it, you can sure, yeah. the math, the math is easier to duplicate. The, the bottom line is, is I I'm just saying, you know, it's, it, it's not possible. There's you, you can't cut most cases. You can't cut your overhead enough to, to make it work or it's very difficult and you certainly can't discount your way to prosperity. And is this stuff that I've known? Yes, because if I forever, when someone opens up a store and talks about how they're going to be a discounter and that's why they're going to be successful, it's like, you know, probably won't need to be making many sales calls on this place because yeah. <laughs> either A, they're not going to be able to pay the bill or B, and B, they won't be here very long. So yeah. it's just never worked. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's a, there's a Seth Godin quote I love. He says, the scariest thing about a race to the bottom is you might win. And he says yeah. that actually even the one thing that's scarier than that is getting second place. <laughs> He's like, the, you know, Boy, that's not a true, place true that you want to be. No, no. So anyway, so how, how do we become a better company, a better vendor um, during times like this? Because I, I, you know, I think winning for our customers tends to look like that they close more of the door swings that they have, that they find more. Um, my brother's line, AES, is add-on extra sales. Um, I can't remember when he came up with that brilliant <laughs> marketing idea, but anyway, um, he, you know, just because someone comes in and said, you know, it used to be when we had a retail hard shop, just because they asked for a glass door for their fireplace, don't stop there. Find out why, you know, let's sell them a grate and a tool set too. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, this is the same kind of environment. They want an insert. Yeah. Well, upgrade the insert. They want to, replace their fireplace well put on an American chimney shroud chimney cap instead of a, a you know kind of yeah. a less than ar- ar- architecturally pleasing mushroom cap right I mean yeah. there's there's lots of ways to to add on and gosh I, I think one of the things now we, we just we can't forget about this is, is people can buy all kinds of stuff on the internet there there are yeah. so many things that they know so much about. Um, and, you know, or some, you know, um, sports hero tells them how great some product is. So they decide they're going to buy it. Well, we don't really have that with our products, do we? People are coming in to these stores to look at our, our products. I mean, what about all the stuff that they don't ask about? You know, don't, don't just assume that they ask this and they're, that was the only thing that you sell that they don't know about everything else that you might be able to do for them. They know about that stuff. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, Kirk, as you, as you say that, it, it, it makes me think about in, in the retail sales process that we teach, step two is called understand the customer's problem. And I think that this applies for manufacturer and distributor reps too, is understand your dealer's problem. Because 
just because the dealer calls you up and says, Hey, I'm, I'm looking for a new gas insert line. That doesn't mean that's all they need or, or even what they need. What that should start is a conversation about, okay, well, tell me about your business. What are you encountering with your gas inserts right now? Oh, okay. Hey, I understand that. Now, how do you, how do you tie that into the venting that you use? You know, what do you do for your installation timeframes on this? And you're going to learn all kinds of things where maybe it is just an insert line is, is the problem, but what I found is through those conversations, it, it usually uncovers something deeper that you can help solve. Same thing with a retail customer when you ask questions of like, oh, okay, I understand that your fireplace is, is not giving you the heat that you want. Tell me about your room. Oh, okay, cool. I understand that. Okay, now what are you hoping this does for you when it's all said and done? That part of understanding is so important and, and very often we're so excited to sell something that when the second someone says, I want this, we just jump right in to like transactional mentality. Okay, let's get it to them. And then they, and then that's it. I made the sale. But what we need to do is build the relational, relational equity of helping them solve their problem because a, that that's actually what they want. B that could very well lead to future business and C it will, it will likely lead to a, a happier customer when we've properly talked to them and, and talked through their problem. You mentioned Tom Pugh though, and I got a couple of questions I want to ask you as we, as we round out here, but we we've had episodes on this show before talking about Tom Pugh and I've interviewed Bill Lentz a couple of times who's, who's really become a mentor for me. But what would you say is the biggest thing you learned from your friendship with Tom? Tom would often comment something to the effect of, look, I don't want to make you do anything that I can't go out and show you that it works. So he was a heck of a competitor. And I think people who competed against him <laughs> probably felt like it was a personal thing. I think for Tom, his his competition was himself. You know, his, his drive to, um, you know, to achieve was, was, was just amazing. And, uh, mm. and, and I think, you know, people, people probably know that, you know, he, he had a law degree and he, he had worked, um, um, I think for the Washington state attorney general. Um, so, I mean, he was an, he was an accomplished person in another business and, and ended up getting into the hearth industry because his father, um, was a rep as well. But, but I, I, you know, this thing of, um, of him really caring enough, there was no way he was going to tell you to do something that he didn't believe and had seen it happen before and or have done it himself. Caring enough about something that you're going to take the time to find out, does this really work as opposed to just, and you, you, you just touched on this. You said, ask this person, what is it that they're, what's the problem they're trying to solve? You know, you, you want to sell them this thing because of whatever reason, don't sell them what they don't need. This, mm-hmm. this person is equity for your business, for the outdoor heaters or the grills that you might sell them after you successfully solve their insert heating desires, needs, whatever, whatever that would be. And they're also, they're also a walking advertisement for you, right? I mean, Everyone who owns a home and has a neighbor, and hopefully we all get along with our neighbors, what's the first thing you do? So you need a plumber, you ask your neighbor or the other people right. in the neighborhood, who's the, who, you know, who'd you use for a plumber? Um, yep. If people are happy with, the, with something they've done with their home, they're telling everyone about it. Yep. I mean, great, run all the ads you want, 
but pretty darn hard to overcome. And, you know, the other great thing about all of that is, you know, the people that you're selling to that are upper middle income people, who are most of their friends that they're talking to? Guess what? Upper middle income upper people. Upper middle income people, right? It's amazing that people who buy $10,000 fireplaces have friends who buy $10,000 fireplaces. It's just, it's just kind of the way that, the way that things work. And I guess as we, as we close out, kind of as we're talking about sales here, I've been asking different guests to finish this sentence for me this season. So I'd ask you this. Can you finish this sentence for me? Sales is a game of... Getting, getting the person, your customer, the individual you're in front of, what they need. Hmm. It's a game of getting people what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, isn't this a Zig Ziglar? If you, you know, if you spend more time helping other people get what they want, it's interesting how it turns out that you end up getting what you want. That That's so good. Kirk, Truly, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful to, to have you and Craig in my life. AES has been a company that's made a big impact on me, and, and no joke. I mean, at least where I live in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, you guys have kind of an unfair advantage because of the relational equity that you guys have built. And uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours who, who buys from you guys has, has told me, you know, that, that during COVID, it was really revealed who the companies were that viewed us like a number and who the companies were that treated us like a partner. And there was a very short list that treated us like a partner, but the number one company that did was AES. And so I know that, that that's your guy's heart. And uh, it's just been really cool to get to talk to you today. So thank you. We, we have really great customers. It's pretty easy to, to, to do the right thing um, when you've got you know, wonderful people that you enjoy working with. So it's a two-way street, I think. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kirk Newby. It was awesome for me. And like I said, you know, AES is a company that I have looked up to for a long time. And both Kirk and his brother Craig have been very influential on my journey. And so it was an honor to get to speak to him about the legacy that he's leaving. And, you know, just some notes. I've got about really about a page of notes in my, my notepad here as I, as I look them over to reflect on this conversation. And, and a few of the things that I want to highlight. Number one, when he talked about the dynamic with him and Craig, why has it worked? Well, there's not a competition between us. And I think that that's so awesome. You know, I, I, I've talked about my relationship with, with me and Grant before on this podcast. And truly, there's, there's so many times where I will see him go speak to a group of people or give some insight to a problem. And, and I'll get kind of self-conscious and just think, oh my gosh, this guy is so much better than me. And um, for me, there, it's not a matter of competition. It's a matter of like, man, like I want to be like him when I grow up. You know, he's he's operating his expertise, and this is where he needs to take the ball and run with it. And and I think the fact that there's that there's not a competition has, has served us well. And and I would say the same thing. You know, in in your business, if if you're in some kind of a, a partnership or or you're struggling with your engagement of your team members, very often I've seen that owners have a mentality where. It's almost like a competition with the rest of their team or with their partners. And because of that, you're not able to make any progress. And I, I think it's the the quote that Ronald Reagan had on his desk that said, it's amazing how much you can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. And, you know, I, I, I love that. That was just the first thing he went to is that there's no competition. When we talked about what he would tell himself 30 years ago, 
roughly, you know, when, when they when they bought out their dad from AES and, and and took it over. And he mentioned how hard it is to be successful. Gosh, I think that's the truth. And the danger of listening to a podcast like this or of hiring a business coach or of, you know, reading business books is to think what I'm doing is really hard. I just need that one more book and it'll get easier. Or I just need to listen to that one more podcast and it'll get easier. But I'll tell you the truth that running a good business is hard and nothing stops it from being hard. I think I think that the best analogy I know is like Jim Collins talks about marathon runners that if you're a marathon runner and you're running your first marathon, you'll be exhausted. I mean, you'll be so tired. You'll be on the verge of throwing up at the end of it probably. Now you can train and train and train and train and go out and run another marathon. But if you are running at the speed you should be running at for your level of training, you'll be just as tired in your second marathon. It doesn't matter that you're faster and stronger because you're pushing yourself further than you did originally. And that's the truth that that it is always hard to run a business. And so you know, it's, you might ask like, well, okay, what's the point of listening to a podcast or of reading a business book or hiring a business coach? I would say while well, there are things that can be made easier by, you know, getting inspiration or insight or strategy from, from you know, a, a piece of content, it doesn't change the fact that execution is hard. And if you don't want to do hard work, get out. And I say that being someone like, I don't consider myself to be a, a naturally hard worker, but I have, I have learned over time that things that are worth doing are hard. You know, we've talked about this before. Like, is it easy to have a good marriage? No, it's hard. Is it easy to be a good parent and have a great relationship with your kids through their teenage years and into adulthood? No, it's hard. But the best things in life are hard. So, you know, if you're looking for the diet pill, man, I I, I don't know where to go for it. I, I, I think that anyone who has that or claims to have it is probably a snake oil salesman because, you know, the, the, the things we talk about on this podcast and the things that you're going to read in a business book or with a consultant, they really will help you. But it doesn't change the fact that it's hard. And I, I just love how he said that, that he, he wishes he would have known how hard it was to be successful. You know, he, he talked about being a golden retriever, you know, in, in, his, in his younger years of just going after every ball. And I've struggled with that. You know, it's so easy to just see opportunity everywhere but at some point, you got to focus. You have to focus on what am I best at, right? I've only got so much energy. I mean, I, I love the, the analogy of, of chasing a ball because your energy is depleting. So it's like you've only got so much energy. You've only got so many years on this earth. You've only got so many hours a week. What are you going to do? Make up your mind because you can't do everything. If you pick something, you know, if, if you have to, you can shift focus, but but be diligent, be strategic, be prayerful, pick what you're going to go after and do it. I, I absolutely love that. He talked about thinking that he could outwork any problem as well. And, and you know, when, when you're a, a single owner operator or, or a tiny, tiny business, you might be able to outwork most problems. But when you're relying on, on other people that you're paying hourly, you think they're going to work as hard as you to try to outwork that problem? No way. 
So you have to start thinking about what am I going to do about this? Can I build a process to make it easier for them? Is there something that we're missing that we need to understand before we execute? You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's wise to realize my ability to work only goes so far. And after that, I've got to get smarter. We talked about this a little bit in the conversation about the, the, the relational equity that AES tries to approach their customers with. And, you know, as, as you've heard me talk about, like, I, I believe it because I experienced it as a customer and, and I've, I've seen it kind of behind closed doors, the way that they are really looking at long-term win-win relationships. And Kirk's example of planting a tree versus catching a fish is so wise. And man, uh, I, I'm still wrapping my head around that, but I, I think I'm going to start using it from, from now on because just think about that. Like we talked about, if, if, if you're in a situation with your customers where you're planting a tree, it will be good for you and it will be good for them, right? You're going to water that tree. You're going to care for it. You're going to help it thrive and grow and you will take some of the fruit, but that's a win-win relationship. But catching a fish, that thing is dead. And you never get another chance at it. And for, for many retailers, many retailers say that they're a relationally driven business. But the way that they treat their customers in not following up and not calling them back after the job to see how it was, not checking back in to see if there's other problems they could solve for them or their friends, it's actually very transactional. They sell it and they're done and they pray the customer never calls them again. We want to be businesses that are relational. And that doesn't mean, you know, upselling when you shouldn't. And it doesn't mean strong arming people and, and looking for anywhere you can cram product down someone's throat. Instead, it means going after a win-win relationship. And actually, it's funny. The other day, I had someone ask me, Tim, what's your angle in this? And uh, it, was a, it was a Wi-Fi situation. And, and I said, you know, look, like, I've got three angles here. Angle number one, because they asked me why I'm making such a big investment in their business. I said, angle number one is that I want you to adopt a sticky behavior to where you never cancel the service. And and we identify different sticky behaviors that when someone uses these features in Wi-Fi, they're never going to cancel it. So I said, you know, my goal is to get you guys up and going on one of these features because I know you're never going to cancel it. My second goal is that I hope in six months, I get an amazing testimonial from you with your picture and your name talking about how much this has changed your business. And then number three, I get a ton of joy out of helping solve problems. And it's my honor to be able to do that. So those are my three angles, you know, and and in doing that, it really broke the ice. And I think that leading with transparency and just saying like, hey, these are my angles. You know, I'm in business and you're in business. And, and, and this is what I'm after. And, and I think that there's a mutual win here. I, I think that that goes a long way. And you'll have to figure out, you know, in your relationships with builders and contractors, people that come back to you regularly, it's really helpful to have very straightforward conversations like that because you you want to make sure that you're planting trees, not, not, you know, killing fish. As we wrapped up and we talked about Tom Pugh, Tom is someone who I only met once and I, I, I saw him speak once and it was it was during a time in my life when I frankly wasn't that interested in, in in taking my career seriously. But in the years since Thomas passed away, I've I've read more and I've watched more of his content and, and talked to people that were so impacted by him. And and I feel like I'm a I'm a student of Tom's um almost the same way that you would read like a uh 
a biography of somebody from years earlier, or I would read theology from 500 years ago or thousand years ago, but, but it's still impacting me today. That's the way that I feel about Tom. And it's so cool to talk to, to Kirk, who was, who was friends with him. And I mean, I, I just think that when he, when he talked about Tom's mentality of saying like, look, I don't want to make you do anything that I can't go out and show you that it works. And, uh, man, I, I hope that this podcast is that for you. You know, my, my hope is that we bring in guests that are speaking from their expertise, not just pontificating theory. And that, and that as I share, it's things that I have lived and breathed and taught and experienced and, and done myself so that you can, you can glean from that as well. And, you know, the, the note that I wrote down is that we need to care enough to go out and do it. I think that there are many companies in our industry that would be very wise to care enough to go out and do the things that they are telling others to do. So I hope that you got a lot of value out of that conversation. And as you can tell from me, just going through these notes, man, this was impactful for me. And there's actually, there's a lot of notes that we didn't even get to. Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash it's fire time. And at the end of the day, I really want this to come back to the relational investment that you're making in your customers. And I know at the beginning of the episode, we we talked about how Kirk's brother, Craig, just seems to have this sixth sense for relationships, but Kirk does too. And if you were to ask vendors and and customers that, that know Kirk, they would say that he has made deep investments in them as well. And my hope for you going out this week is you think about what is a relationship that I can make a deep investment in. Maybe it's a customer, maybe it's a team member, maybe it's a vendor. But if you can go out and do that this week, you're going to be better for it and those people will as well. So hope you have an amazing rest of the week. We'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by InBloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn.